Today I'm going to be talking about wisdom and righteousness under the king's rule. I'm going to read Proverbs 1, 1 through 7. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. To know wisdom and instruction. To understand words of insight. To receive instruction in wise dealing. In righteousness, justice, and equity. To give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. Let the wise hear and increase in learning. And the one who understands obtain guidance. To understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. You may be seated. Just thinking, how many of you, you don't have to raise your hand, were raised in a Christian home? And you were, you don't have to, but you can't. And you were told sayings from the Word of God. And you knew it was important. But they don't really want to follow it. It's like, oh, whatever. You know, whatever. We're going to talk about that today. So, let's think of a couple of real-life situations. Let's say you need, you need a new or used new car. You're thinking about taking out a loan, just, you know, just 3000 bucks, right? What do you do? Oh, by the way, those little cards, those little plastic things we call credit cards, what should they be called? Debt cards. Debt cards. Isn't it funny how words, you can use those words? So how about another situation? Some of you remember... Do you remember the autumn of 2018 and... There was a man named Judge Kavanaugh, nominated to be a justice on the U.S. United States Supreme Court. And it looked like things were moving along and he was going to be moved on and the committee would vote on him and it was all fine, right? And then all of a sudden came somebody accusing him of something. Her name was Miss Ford. And all of a sudden, the political world was turned upside down, you know. And there were people who said, well, I believe her. Like, just out of the blue, I believe her. Some of you thought that was odd, and some of you thought, well, I believe her too. And then I was reading about why should people believe the accuser against this man who has a record, public record, pretty good record. And here are some of the reasons why you should just believe the lady, just period. Because Mr. Kavanaugh does not support the killing of babies in the womb. That's why you should believe her. Because, this one writer wrote, what she accuses him of, quote, they have the ring of truth, close quote. Now think about these words real carefully. Another one said, this is the title of the article, I believe Christine Blasey Ford. And I read the article. There was not a single reason why you should believe her. That was just the headline. That was weird. Then another one. The title was, I believe survivors. I believe Christine Blasey Ford and I still believe Anita Hill. I read that article. There was not a single reason explaining why we should believe her. A couple of more to think about. Now, if you remember, I won't get into details here. The lady accused him of doing something in the high school years sexually related. And you might be a lady and you might remember something evil a man did to you. And so you had emotions and you said, I believe her. Or maybe you're a man and you did something evil to a lady. And you said, well, I believe her. This attorney, who's a woman, wrote, simply because someone says something happened, even if they are 100% certain, it does not mean that it actually did. In fact, research confirms that one's confidence in one's memory is actually a poor indicator 
of the reliability of your memory. That's to say nothing of those who deliberately lie, exaggerate, or conflate experiences for any known or unknown reason, political or personal, conscious or otherwise. Is Ford afflicted by any of these phenomena? Who's to say? Another aspect of this case to look into. And then finally, Dr. Albert Muller wrote this. This is where Christians, before we speak any further about the context in this controversy, must say this kind of behavior that was alleged under any circumstances would be categorically wrong, sinfully wrong, wrong in multiple ways. Just about everything about the picture is wrong. Who's in the room? Wrong. Alcohol being involved? Wrong. Drunkenness being approached? Wrong. Sexual relations outside of marriage? Wrong. Sexual behavior of any form in this context? Wrong. Sexual behavior against consent? Not only morally wrong, but potentially legally wrong. Now, Moeller goes on to continue, and this is where we come into wisdom. But that then raises another issue that is also very important to the Christian worldview. It matters infinitely whether or not it happened. The facts, right? That is an absolute clarification, a matter of fact, that might be very difficult to reconstruct after a span of about 35 years. Now, here we just have to remember how complicated situations like this have been and are now documented to have been. And he goes on to talk about, think about what we tell teenagers on the one hand. You can kind of do whatever you want. But on the other hand, 35 years later, it might come back to haunt you, whatever you want to do, right? And we don't have any clear, absolute lines in society. Now, what I'm wondering is, does God offer us any help? Or does he just kind of put you on earth and say, have fun, and he's kind of cruel, and you've got to figure it out yourself? Just, that's just the way it is, whether you're in China, United States. Or are we just left with secular psychologists? Oh, that gives me the heebie-jeebies. I'll tell you about that later in court cases. But that, that is a problem. Okay, now I've got to remember which button to press here. Here's the outline for today. First of all, wisdom literature points to the Lord. Secondly, wisdom is of God and from God. And third, wisdom helps us in everyday life and it draws us closer into life with Christ. So, wisdom literature. Most scholars say it's in the Bible. Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Songs. All five of these books hold a lot of Hebrew poetry, but that's not all that they have in common. They're known as wisdom literature because the emphasis on understanding and attaining wisdom for all areas of life including our relationships with God and with one another. So it's the wisdom literature. First of all, how does the wisdom literature point to God? Because, you know, you read a lot of Proverbs, Psalms, and, and some of those God is not mentioned a lot. I think, I think Dan preached on Ecclesiastes, did you, Dan? And I think that topic came up, right? Okay. So just briefly, first of all, I want to go through the verses quickly and, and look at some of the Hebrew terms in the different verses of 1 through 7. And I'll do that. I don't have a lot of slides for you, but I'm just going to go into verse 2. First of all, it says to know wisdom and instruction to understand words of insight. And wisdom is being skillful and having a wit. And it's from the root. Exceedingly teach wisdom Show yourself wise. I mean, a lot of us know that word, and I'm using a word to define a word, but just have insight and discernment. And then the instruction part. This is the part some of us don't like. It has a lot to do with chastisement. Chastisement. Being corrected or reproved or warned. And if you think ahead, and if you've ever read the Proverbs, you can see that in the Proverbs, right? A lot of that. It's to understand. We have the Proverbs, and we have wisdom literature to help us to understand and as to have mental discernment, be able to distinguish and consider things very carefully. Those are things we talk about in schooling a lot. We want to teach critical thinking skills. But we'll get back to that, all right? 
How, how can it happen? How can you have critical thinking skills? To understand words, those are sayings, those are things we speak. And then in verse 3, it says, why? To receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity. Think about some of those words in today's context of academe and what's socially correct and politically correct. Think about all that. Just Some of you know what I'm talking about, social justice and those kinds of things. Well, it's right here in Proverbs. Wise dealing means to be intelligent and circumspect. You know what that means? It means kind of stand back and look at things from different angles, right? Go around and get a view on it from different angles rather than just rushing in from one angle. You want to be wise in your dealings in righteousness. What is righteousness? Say, well, we all know that. We're Christians, right? It's to be right. (laughs) It's to have equity. It's to be even and do things that are proper and just. Now, we hear a lot about social justice today, right? Especially when I hang out around professors, a lot of that's social justice and the articles and all those kinds of things. Do you want to be a social justice warrior? The only one that is right that can do that right is if you're saved. Otherwise, it's going to be all messed up. If you want to be a proper social justice warrior, you and I need to repent of our sins, believe in the Lord, and get the wisdom from Him. That's the only way it's going to work right. The only way it's going to work right. You're not going to get it generally from your public school teachers or your university professors or judges on the bench. Most of the time, you're not going to get it because they don't know Christ. They've not been known by Christ. So what's this justice? It's properly a verdict. It's literally making a decision about something. So oftentimes you hear social justice and people say, we don't want to judge anybody. But on the other hand, they do want to judge everybody, especially you and me if we disagree with them, right? So it's proper judgments and proper decisions about a crime and about what the penalty should be. And equity, we hear that word a lot, don't we? In America, we hear equity often. It has to do with being even and impartial and straightforward. It's amazing what's in the Proverbs. This is why we have the Proverbs. To be all of these things. And then verse 4 says, Why else? To give prudence to the simple. Knowledge and discretion to the youth. And it's kind of interesting. And it talks about prudence. It has to do with trickery. But in a positive sense. Like we think of trickery as bad. And it can be. But you want to be prudent in how you do things. Make the right decisions in the right way for the right thing. The youth is just like it sounds, it's the young man. That's what it's talking about here, the young man. Of course, that means young ladies does not mean it does not apply to you. Okay? Just so you know. But it's how it's phrased. It's how God phrased it. To have discretion. And that means a plan. A good plan. And verse 5 says, let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance. Who are the wise? And again, it goes to some words that we might think sound kind of secular, and I'm going to get to that also. It just means intelligent or skillful or artful. And then here we come to what a lot of people think are is the key verb in this passage. To hear. We've talked a lot about that in our church, haven't we? Hearing as a form of worship. It means to hear intelligently and attentively. I'm looking at everybody. Attentively with a cause. So how are you listening right now? Attentively and with a purpose and with a cause. Why? To increase. That means to add and conceive again. To your learning. That's what you received. And it's doctrine. A lot of us don't like the word doctrine anymore. Doctrine. I don't like doctrine. I just want you to teach. Don't talk about doctrine. But it's all, it's all doctrine. Everything in the Bible is doctrine. That's what we get. And to obtain or procure uh, guidance. And that means like steering in the right direction. How many of you steered to get here? On a ship 
I love in James how the little rudder, right, turns the whole big ship. Like our mouths and what we say. And a lot of that's in Proverbs too. Isn't it amazing? If you know the Word of God and you read Proverbs, are a lot of Proverbs starting to come back to you right now? I hope so. If you've not, I'm going to be encouraging you to read the Proverbs. And verse 6 says, To understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and the riddles. Proverb, in the original sense, has something to do with superiority in mental action. I mean, think, look at how much is packed into these verses. So you can have superiority, superiority in your mental action. That's why we have Proverbs. That's one of the reasons we have Proverbs. And these are sayings. They're, I, had to, I had to go back and make sure I understood the words. They're aphorisms. They're satire. And they're taunting words. That's part of what Proverbs are. And they are conundrums. And they're sententious. Do you know that word? Which means moralizing. They're concise statements to really get us to think about something and to become full of wisdom. Now, we're going to talk about what kind of wisdom. Verse 7 is really the foundation of this passage because it says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. And this word beginning does not just mean a little starting point and then you leave it. It's the idea of foundation. It's the principle on which everything is built. So, that's where we are with those verses in a nutshell. And in summary... Oh, I went the wrong button here, I think. Oh my, I'm going to confuse myself. It's a little different than I'm used to. Uh, In summary, consider these four purposes of hearing, it's bringing in the Proverbs. To know wisdom, to understand wisdom's sayings, for you and me to subscribe to moral insight, and to move toward Moral maturity in Christ. You should already be thinking if you're a Christian, there's no way to do this. You, you can't do this on your own. Just any old person does not get to have wisdom. The second main piece of the outline is that wisdom is of God and it is from God. So what do we have in Proverbs? Is it just a set of brilliant statements and maxims to bring up a child? Okay, flash back again if you are raised in a, quote, Christian home. All these things were said to you. Or if you're a Christian parent now and you say the Proverbs to your children, or you try to tell them things, it can kind of stick a little bit on the outside. And you can have non-believers who looked fairly moral, you could have a judge who makes pretty good decisions because he's smart. But there are always going to be failures and none of it is honoring to the Lord unless it's for the Lord. Because most of that is for a better job to get the next appointment as a a judge. To look good in the eyes of people you know. That's the worldly kind of wisdom. Because there are some scholars who think that the Proverbs written mainly to train up young Israelite, young men, to be in positions of authority and power in government. But I think it was way more than that. It's far more than that. I just mentioned what some people think that it was written for these young men. However, Daniel Estes points out that no one can say for sure that the audience was just these young men. Those being groomed for leadership in the nation. We can say, however, and I agree, and this is the quote, it is undeniable that the emphasis of the book of Proverbs is on the expression of wisdom in practical life. 
in a variety of situations, many of which go beyond the particular situations of government officials, Proverbs clarifies how the way of wisdom is distinguished from the way of folly and actions, attitudes, and values. Wisdom is a configuration of soul. It is a moral character. And fostering moral character, it is no overstatement to say, is at all times the greatest goal of education. So many of you know, some of you have gone to schools of education, or you've had education classes, and they teach you all kinds of things. You know, how to do a lesson plan. So exciting. <laughs> how to get students to think critically. How to get them higher on Maslow's hierarchy. You know, self-actualization being the highest. And somewhere in there they'll talk about critical thinking skills that supposedly cannot start until a child's about 12. Sorry, some of you younger children, you can't think critically yet. So there are all these secular ideas of what wisdom is and how you get there, but they don't want to talk about wisdom because that kind of implies a spiritual matter, right? Spiritual matter. So what is a proverb? There's a good, really good definition by Estes. A proverb is a brief, pungent maxim, crystallizing experience. It is not intended to be a precise statement that can be taken as a promise or an absolute, but instead is a general principle crafted to be memorable. I think one of the best examples of people thinking it's this absolute, specific, precise promise is in train up a child and the way he should go when he's old he'll not depart from it so a lot of Christians get very frustrated and very depressed because they thought they raised their children to be a Christian and they are not a Christian you know that's that's a really well known example and if you don't understand it you should be pondering it in light of this definition of a proverb no one would be able to live even for a single day without incurring appreciable harm if he could not be guided by wide practical experience. I mean, these just are helpful ideas, right? I mean, some of them are just helpful ideas, even if you're not born again. These are helpful ideas. The possession of wisdom, says Schreiner, or Walke, enables humans to cope with life. I mean, if you just go out and do random things, you're going to have a lot, a lot of heartache and a lot of injuries. The goal of wisdom was the formation of character and to make sense of life's anomalies. Because it doesn't always go perfectly, does it? How many people had something not go perfectly this past week? <laughs> Almost everybody's chuckling or raising a hand. Okay, so. Okay, I think I might have pushed you out. Okay. Really enjoying this book. Somebody gave it to me as a gift. And regarding Proverbs, Thomas Schreiner writes, the Proverbs often emphasize that one reaps what one sows, so that those who live righteously, got a misspelling there, sorry, will be rewarded. Actually, a careful reading of Proverbs demonstrates that even in Proverbs, the message is more complex than that. There are Proverbs that moderate and nuance the theme that righteousness is its own reward. Still, the basic message of Proverbs emphasizes reward for righteousness and punishment for wickedness. And Job stands forth as an important qualification of what Proverbs teaches. The righteous are not invariably spared from suffering. Indeed, they sometimes suffer in agonizing and inexplicable ways. So it's just a reminder to not take a proverb as a particular specific promise in every single case. It's more of a general maxim. We do not get to know everything even from God's word. Hopefully you figure that out if you're a Christian for more than a few years. We don't get to know everything. Even though the heavenly counsel, for example, in Job is revealed to readers, it is still the case that the rationale for suffering is not clearly comprehended. I mentioned that last Sunday when I was praying, I think, by human beings. The mystery of why the Lord allows evil is not lifted entirely. The prologue indicates that suffering in faith brings honor to the Lord, but such a revelation does not answer every question 
nor does it intend to do so. So the wisdom literature does not give us the answer for everything. That's really important to keep in mind. It does not give you the answer for everything, but it is a huge gift from the Lord, the wisdom literature. And here's the thing. You and I will not want to obey the Proverbs if we're not changed by Christ. We won't want to. We will not love the Lord and want to follow the Proverbs if we've not been regenerated. So what is wisdom and how do we get it? Remember, the, just think back to Job. You thought I was talking about Proverbs, but I'm talking about wisdom. Think about Job, remember? He had everything, right? And then he lost everything. And he even had, you know, the Lord let Satan attack his body. And all these people came to him to give him counsel, right? I think his wife tried, and the young guys tried, and the old guys tried, and everybody tried. 28. Their debate is over, and yet they have not found wisdom. The final verse of Job 28 states that the fear of the Lord is wisdom. Does that ring a bell from Proverbs? Thus setting the stage for Yahweh's entrance in chapter 38. Humans cannot discover God's wisdom by their own reasoning. So he must speak if wisdom is to be achieved. I'm going to read that again. So he, God, must speak if wisdom is to be achieved. Job 28 says is intended is intended to prepare Job and the audience to hear Yahweh's words by teaching explicitly that Yahweh alone can reveal insight into the true order of the universe. So none of us should think that we can be wise on our own. And some people might think, well, I just I get a lot of experience. If I get more experience, I'll be wiser. Maybe. <laughs> Don't count on it. Don't count on it. And do not think that wisdom... Have you ever heard, well, it's just common sense. Don't raise your hand. Have you ever been guilty of that? Well, it's just common sense. Have you ever said, it's just common sense. What is common sense? Have you ever tried to define common sense? Try to define it. You can go around in this room and we could have ten different views of common sense on how to build a patio or whatever. You know, common sense. Well, it's just common sense. One dictionary definition says, common sense is sound. Well, what's sound? Sound and prudent. Prudent. Whoa. Judgment based on a simple perception of the situation or facts. I mean, you, we could spend an hour talking about that definition. What is sound judgment? What is prudent judgment? How do you decide if your judgment is sound based on the simple facts? How do you decide if your judgment is prudent based on the simple facts? That's the problem with something like common sense. We all have different experiences. We all have different values. I'm not saying we all. Hopefully not in this church. But we, we all have different experiences. We should all have about the same values. But in a society, a lot of different experiences, a lot of different values, a lot of different ways of upbringing. So common sense doesn't solve the problem. If common sense solved the problem, we wouldn't have any problems in America, right? There would be no problems when you're trying to nominate a justice to be Supreme Court judge. And what about what people in their 20s think is common sense versus people in their, sorry, in their 30s versus their 50s versus their 70s? What's common sense? And now I'm going back to those psychologists. Okay, so some of you know I testify in court cases as an expert. And I always ask ahead of time, are there going to be any psychologists involved? Sorry here if you're a psychologist. Like nine out of ten times, I'm just going to make up some statistic. It's a big problem. Because psychologists come from many different schools of thought about how the mind works, how the brain works, how the emotions work. What's good for people, what's not good for people. They come from all kinds. And you can get a psychologist to say... Well, I shouldn't say any given psychologist. That sounds horrible. But you can pick a psychologist for your court case to get what you want. And it's not a pretty picture. They do not 
think biblically most of the time. They do not. And my experience, just my experience, is that for most psychologists, whatever is normal, whatever is average, equals good. So if everybody's doing it, that's probably good, you know. That's the problem. You say, well, if most children, 96% spend six hours a day with foolish peers, that must be good for them. Now, I'm not going to get too specific. You know what I'm talking about. Okay, so... Let's go on here. No, wisdom and prudence and discernment are always tied into God. They're always tied into God. And we look at something like Proverbs and think, well, it's not just riddled with Christ. It's not riddled with God. But think about the writers of the time. Nothing was without God, right? That was their mind frame, the Israelites. They didn't think, oh, secular, religious. It was religious. It was of God. They're always writing these things with God in mind. In the Old Testament, Yahweh God is a part of everything. It is never just secular talk, secular words. In Israel, no realm of life was secular, for the teachers were completely unaware of any reality not controlled by Yahweh God. Even if Yahweh is not mentioned, there was no arena of life in Israel where he was absent. Even the prosaic details of life cannot be separated from Yahweh, nor does the book of Proverbs, considered as a whole in its final canonical form, support a secular sacred split. It would be madness to presuppose here some kind of separation, as if in one case the man of objective perception we're speaking, and in the other, the believer in Yahweh. So, have you ever thought about the objective person? You supposedly have those at college, right? I'm just objective. I'm not religious. I'm not an ideologue. Some even might have heard a radio interview I was on a few weeks ago. And I think the host said something like, Well, Dr. Ray, some people say you're an ideologue. And that's a way to marginalize you. Because you're an ideologue, we shouldn't listen to you. Did you notice he didn't ask the other two people? Well, I've heard you're ideologues. By the way, I know who they are, and they are. We are all ideologues. We all have ideology, right? It's just that the ideologue usually means somebody who knows what he believes and is strong about it. That's a scary person. Like Christians, you've got to be careful of Christians because they're ideologues. There is no such thing as an objective person. They all, they're all biased by their presuppositions, the assumptions they have about life, the assumptions they have about their metaphysics and epistemology and axiology, what they think is real, and what they think is of value, and what they think about where you come to know anything. And we know as Christians, the only thing that's dependable is what God has revealed to us. It's the only thing that's dependable. There's no such thing as this objective Dr. Spock person. Now, that's a reference to an old thing, but I don't know. What's that from? Nobody's going to admit they know. It's a TV show or something like that. So, the objective or value less non-God honor does not exist. Everybody has values. You cannot not honor God and be Righteous and wise in a biblical sense. That's, that's, the, that's the thing. Like we can try to pump these things into our children. You can try to pump them into your friends. You can try to pump them into the senators who are trying to make decisions about a nominee. But in the end, it's not going to be the best unless somebody is converted, crunched, brought to Jesus. Remember, after the older men offered their insights to Job, then along came Elihu. He's a younger guy. He's going to offer his useful insights. And Estes writes, Neither the older wisdom nor the youthful perspective, then, is sufficient to resolve Job's problem. Thus, without stating it explicitly, the author of Job suggests that if an answer is to be found to Job's predicament, 
Yahweh must speak. And then his people have to hear, right? So God must speak. And he does speak often to men and women and boys and girls. And they don't hear his voice and obey. So what has to happen? The Lord, we ask the Lord to save you and save me. Repent and believe. And open our eyes. We must fear the Lord. So remember we read that in Proverbs? But what is fundamental and determinative for wisdom is conveyed by chapter 1, verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Indeed, the fear of the Lord plays a central role in the entire book of Proverbs. The fear of the Lord means that He is... Okay, now listen real carefully. The fear of the Lord... What do you think? Fear. Some of you are thinking spiders, right? Or, I don't know, little fuzzy things in the bathtub. Or the dark. Or swinging bridges. Or having to get into an MRI thing and go through a tunnel on a stretcher. Are any of you nervous yet? Okay, so... The fear of the Lord means that He is supreme in one's life. That all of life is ordered by one's relationship with Him. The discourses that open the book can contrast wisdom with folly. The fear of the Lord in chapter 1 verse 7 and chapter 9 verse 10 function as the framework for the discourse that introduced the book. So, fearing God means you believe He is supreme in your life. He's supreme in the universe. He's overall. He reigns. He rules. He's king. And then you might say, but I cannot fear the Lord on my own. You're correct. You can only do it if you're saved. And you can only do it if you're humble. And humility is in Proverbs. Stop and think. It's in there. But you can only be humble if you're saved. You're going to be humble if you place yourself under the kingship of Jesus Christ. That's the only way you and I are going to want to listen to God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, verse 7 says. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. And I already talked about the word beginning. It is the foundation. It's the principle. It's not a little starting point that you leave like, Oh, I feared God 20 years ago and now I'm going to, I'm going to run on my own. It doesn't work that way. It's the foundation every day, all day, all the time. But who can attain to such wisdom and, and greatness? President Trump? President Obama? Justices? Kings? Some of them, if they're saved, can reach the wisdom. But it's never going to be perfect, is it? Even for those of us who are saved, it's not perfect. So, let's look at the list. third main point. Wisdom draws us closer into life in Christ and helps us in everyday life situations. Proverbs is fundamentally about wisdom. And wisdom, as we have seen, is God-centered. Focusing on the fear of the Lord, submitting to God. Wisdom means living under His sovereign rule in the particulars of daily life. So it's not just when you have to make some amazing statement to a friend who wants your advice. It's all day long. It's about what time to get up in the morning. It's about what time to go to bed at night. It's about how many parties to have. It's about what books to read. It's about whether to get that loan or not. It's about whether to put a bigger number on your debt card. It's about all of those things. If God says, be diligent and work hard like the ant. Anybody remember that proverb? Do you have that picture in your mind where all ants they're getting busier now, aren't they, as the weather warms up? If God says, be diligent and work hard like the ant, then I should behave diligently and work hard like the ant because, why? I fear God. 
And again, it's not the fear that says, He's going to smash me if I don't like an ant. It's because my life is subservient to Him. If God says, do not gossip, but I gossip, why is that? It's because I lust for gossip more than I fear God. More than I respect and love my Lord. That's why I gossip. Like, whoa, that's kind of spiritual. It is spiritual. Because, you know, where our treasure is, our heart will be, right? If you value the Proverbs, not just because they're this thing in a book, you value the Proverbs because they're from God, your heart will start going to the Proverbs. And as you go more to the Proverbs and the other wisdom literature, the more you will value it. It works hand in hand. The more that you and I know the Proverbs, the more we will know God and what He wants from us. The more we hear His Word, with only with ears to hear, right? The more it will be of value to us. The more we obey God in the Proverbs, the more we honor Him and glorify Christ. The more we honor our Lord, the more others will be pointed to the wisdom of God and to the author of Proverbs, Jesus the King. That's how it works. Wow! That guy has wise counsel. And it's not for your or my popping up. It's for honoring the Lord. And people are interested in that. And then you might say, but I still fall short. Oh. But brothers and sisters, it's not about I and you. The main point of Proverbs is not Bill or Susie or Mary. The main point of Proverbs is about pointing us to Christ and honoring Him and fearing Him. And there are blessings in it. No human king or subject fulfills the ideal kind described here, like in, with Solomon or someone, some other wonderful king in Proverbs. For all kings, to one extent or another, practice injustice. If Proverbs is viewed from a canonical perspective, the ideal picture of the king points to a future king. A king who fulfills the promise of the covenant with David, the righteousness, wisdom, and godlike stature of the king point to Jesus of Nazareth. The righteousness and wisdom and godly rule described in Proverbs are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. None of us can attain to that perfect picture. We just can't. But we can thank Him for bringing us into His kingdom. We can thank Him for giving us the Proverbs. He didn't just let us roll and find out and fall and flop around and, you know. Can you imagine how many more problems you and I would have if we didn't pay attention to the wisdom of God? I've thought about that many times. The Lord had not saved me. What a wreck and a mess in many ways. We can also thank Him for an orderly universe. Again, it's not a particular promise in any particular thing. If you do this, He'll do that for you. But the order is there. And those principles apply. We can thank Him for this orderly world. And we can thank Him for specific examples. You think, oh, Brian's going to talk about problems. He's going to, you can't go into all the problems in a sermon, can you? And there's so many different topical items. But just think of a few things. You just go through problems. We can depend on them in our daily lives. For example, you will end up living like a slave and the rich will rule over you if you borrow money from others. Ooh, that's kind of scary. How many of you have met people who are, well, don't raise your hand <clears throat> because I asked a person. How many of you have met people who are too far into debt? I think all of us have. How many of you have met people who had to make decisions in life controlled by their debt? 
I have. I'm sure you have. God explained it thousands of years ago. He said, don't do it. A person who first defends the case seems to be completely right until one hears the other side. And I was thinking about that. We need to apply that all kinds of places. If somebody says to you, just trust me. Like, I was thinking, even if one of your church leaders says, just trust me, be careful. There are, there are other scriptures about respect your elders and obey your elders. However, God says, hear both sides. That trumps a church leader saying to you, just trust me. Okay? God's word is first. Visiting a neighbor too often might cause that person to hate you. Remember that one? Especially if you go over there early in the morning. Good morning, Mr. Smith. I know, one of my children's thinking, yeah, what about in the morning when you wake us up? <clears throat> uh, well, that, that's another proverb. There's a proverb about that. About that, that cheerful voice or being too loud and excited. Like when you're out early in a tent, trying to get up in a tent or something. I'm looking at certain people. A desire that fails to materialize may cause a person to become heartsick. Whereas a desire fulfilled is like a tree of life. Proverbs 13, 12. Those who are cheerful enjoy life because of their positive attitude. Proverbs 15, 15. And their joy gives them strength to endure sickness and adversity. 17, 22 and 18, 14. So, some of us might say, well, I'm just like that. That's who I am. What does God say? And if He is my King, then if I have things just how I am, I like to be loud and wake up other people in the morning. Maybe God's saying, try something else. Those who pursue plans without seeking counsel often fail because they did not seek out wisdom. Proverbs 11.14 and 15.22 and 20.18. Strife and quarrels will die out if there is no gossip to feed them. Proverbs 26.20-21. And you know this is just a tiny, tiny portion of... I, I'm guessing that most of you know now, looking at this, even if you've been a Christian a short while or have not let, read Proverbs a lot, you know those are true, don't you? So just think how much more you could honor the Lord and enjoy your life if you knew the Proverbs and heeded them. Whoops. That's not that. There's a handy little book that Betsy and I got. We used it for about 30 years called Proverbs for Parenting, a topical guide for raising children by Barbara Decker. And some of our children might think, oh, I remember that. But it's valuable. And I would change the title to Proverbs for Becoming a Maturing Christian and Being a Parent. Because the Proverbs for all of us. The wisdom literature is for all of us. It has topics in it like reverence for God, wisdom and instruction. Under that you have fools and folly, for boys, for girls, marriage and sex. And another topic, self-control, anger, diligence, how to use alcohol, envy and jealousy. And another section, relationships, avoiding bad associations. Love and friendship. Respect the parents. It's great. It's just, I mean, some of you have other books like that. They're divided up into topics. And, you know, if you're having a little trouble with somebody, go flip it, open that book, look up the topic. Wow. This is how God wants me to behave. Toward Jeff. Or David. This is what God wants. To see, if I'm not saved, I don't want that, right? I don't want that. If I don't want to obey God, I don't want to submit to God, I don't want, uh, yeah, I don't want to get mad at Him. I want to do this, and I want my way. Proverbs helps you in that all the time. You can only properly apply this if you cherish Jesus as the King. He's the only, he's the only one who can be like this perfect. He's the only one who was like this perfectly. I thought I had another slide here, but I don't. 
Okay. I'm going to read a final quote. I thought I had it up here, but so listen carefully. It's a long quote by Thomas Schreiner. Those who do not fear Yahweh are not wise. The wise live under Yahweh's lordship. Proverbs unpacks what the fear of the Lord looks like in everyday life, applying wisdom to the practical realities of human existence. But life under Yahweh's lordship is not an abstraction. Fearing the Lord is related to the everyday circumstances of human life. If Psalms emphasizes praising the Lord, Proverbs focuses on fearing Him. And I'm going to insert here for a minute. Remember what fearing Him means. Submitting to Him. He's my King. These are two different perspectives on the same reality. Only those who fear the Lord will praise Him, and those who praise Him will fear Him. Proverbs points to Jesus Christ, who is wiser than Solomon and rules the world with a wisdom greater than Solomon's. Jesus is our perfect king. Remember the recent sermons? Being a slave to Jesus. But it's, it's a it's a home, it's a kingdom where he's your, your, your master is always good. Your master is always generous to his children. He's not harsh. He's just, but he's not harsh to his children. Let's pray. Father, thank you for allowing us to have specific written instructions that help us to make sense of what looks like a very chaotic world. Thank you for saving us so that we can hear and obey and enjoy Jesus, our King, our Master. Help us to pay attention to the wisdom literature, we call it, your word, your precious word, your tender word, your potent word, your awesome word, your strong word, your comforting word. Thank you for helping us to hear and heed and obey. Thank you for drawing us close to you. And I ask you to help every person here who is one of your children to enjoy reading the wisdom of your word. To glorify you more and more each day as we practice it. Amen.